Thanks for downloading this edition of Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and today we're going to talk about, well, we try to talk about the baptism of Jesus, and we get to it. We talk about Luther's understanding of looking at the world through spiritual eyes. He brings up St. Agatha. That's nice. And we rejoice in the Trinitarian theology of baptism and also in the great pastoral comfort that God the Holy Spirit gives to us in this gift of baptism, the promise that God the Father looks at us as his own children. So stay tuned. Hey, welcome to CrossFit. Happy Monday afternoon. Happy eighth day after Epiphany. You know what day that is. Today, January 13th. This is, by the way, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here, broadcasting live on this Monday afternoon from the Tower Studio at St. Paul Lutheran Church, Austin, Texas. I'm your host for Cross Defense, where every Monday we, we sit around together and we rejoice in the Lord's Word, which gives life. It's like, uh, it's like miracle grow for faith and joy. That's what the Lord's Word is. The Holy Spirit comes in the Word, and he, he just stokes the fire of joy and peace. And knowing the Lord and His kindness, that's what we're after, because, because the devil is always trying to cause us to fall asleep spiritually. Tuper. That's what they called it, which is a cool kind of word. Tuper. So we're trying to wake up from that spiritual sleep. I appreciate you being here with me today. We're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. But, but, before I just was reading... My uh, friend, Pastor Sean Kilgo, let's see, how's this backstory go? Pastor Kilgo is pastor of like 14 churches in Kansas somewhere. I, I don't know. He's got a bunch of churches over there. I don't know how many, one, one guy has so many churches, but he um he and I were talking a couple years back, and I don't remember the chicken or the egg of this story, but one of us noticed that there's this theme that runs through Martin Luther about spiritual eyes. I hope to develop this a little bit more uh, for us here on the cross defense, our little cross defense family. Uh, but uh, but but I was talking to Sean a couple of weeks ago or a, month, a couple months ago or something. He said he put together a presentation for the pastors about this idea, the eyes of faith versus the eyes of the world, Luther's insights into John from his preaching. And so Pastor Kilgo sent me that this week, and I just printed it out and started reading it. It's fantastic stuff. In fact, he starts, Pastor Kilgo starts with this distinction by quoting the, the hymn, the Luther baptismal hymn. Now, th- now, okay, so let me take a half step back and get a kind of a double running start on this. Number one, you know that Luther wrote a ton of hymns, all almost all in one year when they were making this transition, trying to get more stuff in the language so people could understand it because everything was hidden in Latin in Germany in the Middle Ages and so they were trying to they were trying to put some light on this stuff and so Luther wrote a bunch of hymns for that purpose and he wrote six hymns on each of the six chief parts of the catechism so he wrote a Ten Commandment hymn and a Creed hymn and a Lord's Prayer hymn and a Baptism hymn and a Confession Absolution hymn that's the De Profundis 130 hymn from Depths of Woe it's great Lord's Supper hymn maybe he wrote a couple of those the Luther's baptismal hymn is maybe the least well-known of all of those hymns. It wasn't in the old hymnal, surprising. But it is in the new one, To Jordan Came the Christ Our Lord. We sang it yesterday. It's tough. But the words are great. And here's a stanza. I don't even know which one. It says, All that the mortal eye beholds is water as we pour it. Before the eye of faith unfolds the power of Jesus' merit. 
for here it sees the crimson flood to all our ills bringing healing the wonders of his precious blood the love of God revealing assuring his own pardon so your earthly your mortal eyes see water but the eyes of faith see the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and so forth and so on do you see it now you, this is the idea that there's a distinction when we look at something and when we hear something it's a biblical theme that runs through the book of Revelation profoundly for example John says I I heard them say the lion prevailed and I looked and I saw the lamb as he had been slain this see this hearing and looking and the the way these two play off of each other is great now now here here uh, pastor Kilgo pulls a bunch of quotes from Luther where he's talking about this and and I it's on my mind so I just want to I'm gonna just read a little bit from you and maybe say a little comment and then and then when we're done with that we'll take a look at Matthew 3 this riddle of the baptism of Jesus and then uh, if we have time we'll look at Romans 4 this picture that Paul paints for us you know it's that reminds me it's a it's a rare hmm uh, hmm I for a long time was trying to figure out how to read the Psalms and and it was tough for me because I don't know if I I don't know if this is obvious to to you listeners but like when I was growing up and going to school I was always in the math side of things I was a I was studying engineering in undergrad, and I was always, if I, I, I got good grades, uh, well, not good, but I, I got grades that were sufficient because I got really good math grades, and it dragged the English and all the other stuff along with it. In fact, when I decided to go to, go to the seminary, I, I switched from mechanical engineering to literature just because I figured oh, I'd better learn how to read, <laughs> much less write. Who knew about writing? I never figured that was going to be part of the equation uh so so i'd always always have the number things and the and the kind of what the 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 creative sort of artistic side of stuff was always tough for me now the result of this the re point of this whole story is that i i've always been really bad at reading poems which is bad because half the bible is poems especially the book of psalms and everything else it's tough so a couple of years ago, I was sitting there and I said, I got I to gotta think of how to read the Psalms. I mean, I want to give myself uh, at least a little bit of help trying to understand what the Lord is up to when he gives us the Psalms. And that's in, in general is this, I try to how to read how to read poetry as well. And one of the main things when reading the Psalms, I mean, there's three big questions that I like to ask. What's the structure? If you can see us some structure, that's helpful to ask. And who is talking to whom? That's important to ask. Is it us talking to God? God talking to us? God talking to himself? You are my son today I have begotten you. That's the best Psalms. Oh, where God is talking to God. Sit here at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. <laughs> oh, that's great. In fact, I was just reading Isaiah 49 this morning the second servant song and it's jesus talking and he's telling us what god the father said to him <laughs> how about that for a marvelous text uh, I've got jesus telling us what the father said to him <laughs> here i'll look at i'll read it for you so you so you'll know what i'm talking about it says uh listen to me o coastlands let's see surely but i've said uh, you are oh yeah he said to me you are my servant 
in whom I will be glorified. <laughs> this is so good. Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is, too, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah 49.6. So that's Jesus telling us what God the Father said to him. That's fantastic stuff. So that's the second question of the psalm. Who's talking to whom? And the third question of the psalm is what's the picture? Now this is the big one. What is the picture being painted? And oftentimes it's a complex picture. It's a, it's a multi-layered picture. But the, if you can get the picture, you can get the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still water. He restores my soul. This is, the, uh, this is a beautiful picture. And then it switches. You, you, you uh, set me, the, me at the table in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. It switches from the picture of a lamb being protected and guarded in this beautiful garden with the, with the, with the pool there and everything to uh, a soldier or a, a servant being set at a, ta at a feasting table while the enemies are surrounding him. And he's sitting there feasting and rejoicing while all the enemies are railing against them. What a picture is that? I mean, it's phenomenal. So you ask these three questions. What's the structure? Who's talking to whom? And what's the picture? And then you start to get the Psalms. Well, it turns out, it turns out that St. Paul teaches the same way. He teaches with pictures. He's painting pictures in his teaching. And this is really helpful because Paul is dense. When you read through Paul, it's like, it's like eating cheesecake. I mean, it's just dense theological stuff. But when you start to see that Paul also speaks and teaches in pictures, then it starts to unfold itself for us. And one of the most stunning, shocking pictures that he gives to us is in Romans chapter 6, where he talks about being buried with Christ through baptism into death. So if we have time, we'll talk about that. But here, okay, back to Luther. Now, Sean sent me this thing. He's got 20 pages of Luther here. You guys tracking with me? We're still getting started. This is Luther from um, commenting on John. I'll just read a couple paragraphs. Thus we read about the holy martyrs who defied tyrants or about the suffering and tortures of the young virgins Agnes and Agatha who were so cheerful and happy on their way to prison and death that they imagined with pride that they were going to their wedding. Now these are two of Luther's favorite martyrs, Agnes and Agatha. One was 13 and the other was 21. Both had decided that they weren't going to get married. Instead, they were going to devote themselves to a life of study of the Scripture and prayer, kind of a pre-nunnery kind of thing. One was, I can never remember where, they were in different places, different centuries. One was about 206 and the other was about 304, their martyrdom. So they were about 100 years apart. But they're famous martyrs in the in the church, and Luther loved to talk about them because both of them, one who was being led to the stake to be burned, the other who was being led to prison, they both danced. They skipped as if they were going to their wedding, and that's really what they were doing. And they had this joy. This is how the story goes, and this is why Luther loves to talk about them, that they had this utter joy headed to their, in the midst of their suffering and headed to their death. Both of them were, you know, these wicked Romans wanted to marry them and they refused because they considered themselves 
the, to, be, uh, to be set apart for Christ. And so because they refused to be married, they were tortured and all this sort of stuff. But they didn't consider it torture. They were cheerful and happy on their way to prison and death. And they imagined with pride that they were going to their wedding. Luther continues, Indeed, dear daughter, if you can face imprisonment and beheading as though you were going to a dance, then your heart, mind, and courage must surely be different from the world's. You can disdain life and limb, nobility and friendship, and all the possessions on which the world places its reliance. Such courage must be the work of none other than the Holy Spirit. It must meet with the heaven, hearty approval of the Heavenly Father to see a heart which, re, which resolves firmly and stoutly and affirms unyieldingly, I will not leave Christ, but for his sake I will cheerfully suffer what I can. If anyone does not like it, he can lump it. <laughs> I wonder what that says in the original German. <laughs> if it, I belong to Jesus. You could cause me to suffer. I don't care. I belong to Jesus. And if you don't like it, you can lump it, says, says Luther. <laughs> he continues. This may aptly be called a godly defiance and arrogance, or the defiance and arrogance of the Holy Spirit. For it does not have its source in flesh and blood, as is apparent from those whose whose fear brings on apostasy and denial of the gospel, the world is not able to have or give this courage, for it places reliance only in the things it sees, in goods, reputation, and high honor. When what it boasts of comes to an end, as all must come to an end, its courage also vanishes and sheer despair remains. Luther continues, and here's maybe the key point. Christians have nothing to rely on but Christ, their Lord and God. They willingly surrender all things for his sake and say, before I deny or forsake my Christ, I will bid farewell to neck and belly, honor and goods, house and home, wife and child, and everything. Therefore, this courage cannot be a sham or a delusion. It must be genuine and real. Its comfort is not rooted in earth's temporal or transient things for the sake of which it would be willing to suffer. No, it pins its hope solely on the Lord Christ, who was crucified and died for us. In keeping with his promise, Christ certainly must say, Since you confess me, you enjoy this advantage and comfort, and you can boast that your defiance and courage will not mislead you, for he is called a spirit of truth. All other defiance and pride stems from a spirit of lies or a pseudo-spirit, which cannot be pleasing to God. But whatever a Christian does and suffers in faith, in the Lord Christ, is absolute truth, proper and right. And he can boast truthfully and joyfully that it is approved by God and all the angels. A Christian is sure of his position and fears neither devil nor the world, nor is he intimidated by any threat or terror. Now, this is really quite stunning, that the world looks at suffering and says, Oh, it must be that God has left us, God has abandoned us, God has gone. But spiritual eyes look past the suffering to, to the one who is in ruling and reigning in heaven the, to the one who's sitting on the throne and rejoices that this one is in charge, that our heavenly bridegroom is in fact in charge. So we can disdain all the stuff of this life for the sake of knowing Christ. Now you say, well, you know, easy for, easy for you to say. You know, what do you know about suffering? There you are, Pastor Wolfmuller, ensconced in the tower studio, <laughs> high above. This <laughs> is the tower. So great. Yeah, well, fair enough. But look, this is good to be ready for this before it comes. To know that the devil can take their life, 
goods, fame, child, wife. The devil can strip away everything, but he cannot steal Christ from us, nor can he steal us from Christ. We belong to him. We're safe in him. We are secure in him. And even though it looks like we're not secure, we want the eyes of faith, know it. Spiritualize, trust it. It's fantastic. I can't believe I'm getting the warning that the break, it's time for a break. We haven't even gotten started, so stay tuned. We're going to come back. We'll wrap up this business of spiritualize and start into Matthew chapter 3 in the baptism of Jesus. You're listening to Cross Defense, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Short break now. Stay tuned. Monday, January 13th, 2020, KFUO Radio thanks our day sponsors, Gerard and Linda Kruger of St. Peter's, Missouri. Gerard and Linda made a gift to KFUO Radio in celebration of their 52nd wedding anniversary and in thanksgiving to the Lord for all the blessings he has bestowed upon them, including the blessing of their three children and eight grandchildren. Thank you, Gerard and Linda Kruger, for helping us share the gospel and for being today's KFUO Day Sponsors. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of word and work be busy on your corner. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here. I wonder who picked that song as the theme song for Cross Defense. Anyway, we're talking about the baptism of Jesus, potentially. But I got another line here. Thanks for Pastor Kilgo for sending me this stuff from Luther on spiritual eyes. Whew. Here, here's another little line. Just a little, just a little, little bit. Here there are two kinds of sight and hearing, says Luther on John. One is performed with physical eyes and ears entirely without the Spirit. This is the way all the Jews looked at Christ with their five senses. So they ascertained that he hailed from Nazareth, he was Mary's son. I look at you this way and establish that you were born of a father and a mother, that you're a man or a woman, that you live and act, so and so. This is a purely natural and physical sight. But Christ cannot be recognized in this way, nor can, for that matter, his Christians, even if we saw him every hour before our eyes and heard him, 
The second kind of seeing is a spiritual sight, which only Christians have, and which takes place by means of faith in the heart. With this, if we are Christians, we must also view and recognize one another. For I do not recognize a Christian by his external appearance and the way he lives, how he acts, but by the fact that he's baptized and has God's word. That makes him a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and an heir of eternal life. I do not see this inscribed on his nose or his forehead. I always wondered, by the way, as an aside, what it would be like if we had like a, you know, like a glowing battery thing for our faith and trust in God, just kind of an indicator on our forehead. And you're like, oh, your faith is kind of weaker. Oh, your trust in Christ is getting low or whatever. We don't have it. Uh, I don't see it inscribed on his nose or his forehead, nor do I discern it with my physical eyes. I see it with spiritual vision of the heart. This is something. Well, got to think about this. Now, we want to take the spiritual eyes, the seeing of the seeing of faith, which comes through the word of God, and apply it to the scriptures. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3. How's that sound? Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bible hanging around, nobody ever has Bibles hanging around anymore because they say, oh, I got my telephone. And they say, well, maybe I'll go read a Bible passage. And they open it up and spend 30 minutes looking at the Twitter. You know who I'm talking about. I like the idea of having a Bible made out of paper. But, oh, well, I'm old-fashioned in that way. Matthew chapter 3 beginning at verse 13, is the baptism of Jesus. Now, we got a couple of things that we want to say about the baptism of Jesus. Number one, let us note, first of all, that the two perhaps most clearly Trinitarian passages in the entirety of the Scripture have to do with baptism, both in Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is coming up out of the water and the Holy Spirit is descending on him in the form of a dove and God the Father is speaking from heaven. He's Beautiful words, behold my son, in whom I am well pleased. Oof. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three there in the picture. And then the other text that's so Trinitarian and so wonderful also has to do with baptism. It's the last passage in Matthew, again, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to treasure all the things I've commanded you, and look, I'm always with you, even to the end of the ages. So so we have this, this name of the, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, this three in one, and all three persons listed there, quite beautifully, in the baptismal formula. This is really... It's really quite something. So that as as Jesus is instituting this great gift of holy baptism, the 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 name of the of the three persons of the Godhead are articulated for us. Now, this is really quite amazing because there's a connection to the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of baptism. There's a, a handful of connections, but one of them, the most simple but perhaps most beautiful, is this, is that, is that in our baptism we are brought in to the, to the communion of the, of the family of God so that we, we, are, we are adopted as God's children so that Jesus is our brother and God is also our Father. Remember, God the Father has only one begotten Son, that's in the famous verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only 
begotten Son. There's only one begotten one, and that is Jesus. And and so that so that we could look at Jesus and say, well, look, he's an only child, <laughs> as far as the begottenness is of God, and he so he's alone there. And so so how could we then be the children of God? If Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, how can we be the children of God? If Jesus is the only Son, how can we be co-heirs with him? Well, the answer is adoption. That we are we are part of the family of God, not by begottenness, but by being adopted into his family. And when you adopt someone, you take them and you give them your name. So we have a couple of adoptions in my own family, and, and the last name of my adopted cousins is Wolfmuller. They're given the family name. It's not the name of their of the their mom or their dad it's the name of their adopted mom and dad and so when we are baptized it's in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit so that god can you imagine it god says look i don't want you were born by nature children of wrath ephesians 2 you were born under the captivity of the devil john chapter 8 and yet god comes along he says i'm going to give you my name so that you're part of my family. I'm adopting you as my children. <sighs> Behold what man how does John say? Behold what manner of love. This is an amazing verse. Is it first John three? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. So that this so that it's not an accident that the that the life of the Trinity is unfolded most clearly for us in these two passages, Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 28, that have to do with baptism. It's, it's the, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are enfolding us into the, into the family of God in the gift of baptism. Now that's the first point. Now the second point, to get ready for this text in Matthew chapter 3, I'd like to, I'd like to make this note and that is that that the bible has a lot to say about the distinction between person and office now i think i know although i'm not sure because one of my problems is just one of the many problems that i have you no doubt can recognize a few of them but one of the problems that i have is that i'm i kind of live in the theological realm and it it puts me out of touch with the uh, with normal people i should say and so I, I'll say stuff sometimes, and I'll have to ask the Bible classes, do we, do we use that word in real life, or just is it just a theology word? And I'm, I have to admit that I'm a little bit out of touch on a lot of things, including this, is I think that, that we will talk about the distinction between person and office sometimes. But it's not a real lively sort of thing. It's, I mean, if you point it out, people are like, oh, yeah, well, okay. I see, I see, but it's not something that we normally think about, this distinction between person and office. That we, we have our person, we, we are who we are, and yet we can move in and out of different offices. I, I am Brian. When I became a pastor, I was in the office of pastor. So on June 24th, 2005, I was just Brian. And the next day, June 25th, 2005, I was pastor. Brian Wolfmuller, the office was given to me, and uh, you know before a, pre so a president can be elected, but before they're inaugurated, they're just the guy, and then at the inauguration, they are, 
they enter into the office. You can enter into the office, you can leave the office, and you remain the same person. So that marriage, one of the reasons, and we have these oaths often associated with entering into the office. So when a soldier finally becomes a soldier, they, they take an oath and they enter into the office. Or when a husband or, or when a man or woman enters into the office of husband or wife, they take an oath, their marriage vows, and they then enter into the office. Now what happens when we enter into the office is that a lot of things become authorized, and in fact, a lot of things become good works that were sins before we were in the office. If some guy just stands up and, and starts preaching in the midst of the church and thus says the Lord, that's a, that's a sin, but when someone's put in the office of preaching, that becomes a good work. Or maybe it's most clear with husband and wives. The things that are good works with husbands and wives are sins in any other context, according to the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit adultery, and so forth. So we enter into the office for for uh, a certain particular work. You're, you could not be a parent, and then you have a child. Now you're in the office of parent, and so forth. And the Holy Spirit comes to give us strength for the offices that we have. Now, in the Old Testament, they had the office of, especially of prophet and priest and king, and the prophet would set people into the office of priest or into the office of king so that they could have their vocation. And the way that they would do it is through the anointing oil. They'd get the olive oil, and they would pour it on their heads. That's why there's this psalm, this crazy psalm, Psalm 133, I think. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon, which makes sense. And it's like the beard dripping off, it's like the oil dripping off the beard of Aaron. And you think to yourself, what? The oil on this, he's the, this olive oil soaked beard? That's not exactly a picture of beauty. But it meant... It meant that the oil was on his head so that he was anointed for the office. The, beard, the oil dripping off the beard of Aaron means that Aaron is now the high priest so that he can stand between, between God and his people and intervene and, and, and mediate on their behalf. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. That oil on Aaron's beard means that he can raise his hands in blessing and put his names on the people. And so we rejoice in that because the oil puts you in the office. Now, the, the name for that, for the one who's had the oil poured over their head, is Messiah. The, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. And it comes into Greek as Christos or Christ. That means the anointed one. So that the kings in the Old Testament were little messiahs, and the, the priests in the Old Testament were little Christs, all looking forward to the, to the Christ, to the Messiah who was going to come. Now, Jesus, then, needs to be or will be, according to the Scriptures, anointed for his unique office. He'll be set apart for it. So that Jesus is Jesus, God in the flesh, the God-man, and he is that from the moment of his, con his conception. But he's going to be set apart for the office of Messiah and the office of Savior. And that's what's happening at his baptism. In fact, Psalm uh, no, no. Isaiah 42 says that you, have, you, I will put my spirit upon him so that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, will be the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit. So it's amazing in the baptism of Jesus that Jesus comes up out of the water 
and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and it rests upon him. And then John points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that Jesus, at his baptism, becomes Jesus Christ. <laughs> he always was Jesus. He was always God. This is not some sort of adoptionistic heresy where, you know, Jesus was just a normal dude, and then at his baptism he became the God-man. No, he was, from the very beginning, from the moment of his conception, God in the flesh. But it's at his baptism that he is, he is ordained. He, he, is, he, has the, he is anointed. He is christened. He is messiahed. He is set apart for this unique work of being the Savior. Now this comes up later. It's easy to miss this. I missed this for a long time. When Jesus, the second time around, cleanses the temple, remember this? He, he takes a, some cords and he makes a whip and he starts driving these guys out of there who were selling and buying and doing all this nonsense in the temple. My house should be called a house of prayer. And they stop him and they say, by whose authority do you do this? In other words, who ordained you? <laughs> Where, how, how, do you how can you come in here with this whip and drive us all out of here? And Jesus says, well, whose uh, baptism was John's baptism? Now, normally, we just, we, those are two disconnected things. We think that Jesus, they asked a trick question. Jesus answers with a trick question. They refuse to answer his question. Because if they say that John's baptism was God's baptism, then they'll support John and Jesus. If they say it wasn't, then they'll have a riot on their hands because the people really like John. So Jesus gives them a gotcha question. And so because Jesus gave them a gotcha question and they don't answer, then he says, well, I'm not going to answer either. But there's more to it than that. Because the authority of John to baptize is connected with the authority of Jesus to cleanse the temple. That Jesus, when he goes in to cleanse the temple, is acting according to his office as the Messiah. Jesus, when he goes in to drive out the money changers, is acting in, according to his office of deliverer and according to the promises that are given in the Old Testament. That he will turn the house of his house into a house of prayer. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's part of the office that Jesus has. So that Jesus is not just saying, hey, uh, I'm going to ask you, you want to trick me? I'm going to ask you a trick question. No, Jesus is pointing to the, to the ordination that he received by the baptism of John. Okay. So that's a key point. And we should understand it because this tells us why we don't have stories from the, from the childhood, the adolescence, the growing up of Jesus. I mean, we just have the one account of the boy Jesus in the temple, age 12. So birth and then the one account there, and that's it. That's all we hear because it's, precisely when Jesus is baptized, when he's about 30 years old in the Jordan River by his cousin John, that's when he begins his work of being the Messiah. But there's even a little bit more to it than that. There's a little riddle in the text. I have loved this riddle since I first started pressing on it 20 years ago. Because John sees Jesus coming to him. Remember how this went? John's there, he's 30, 31 years old, he's wearing camel skin, he's got locust breath, he's, he's pounding the people with the law, brood of vipers, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, that reminds me, I got an email yesterday, and someone said, you know, we imagine John the Baptist kind of thundering away at the people, but could it have been that he was a little more sad, like Jeremiah in his preaching? 
Oh, you brood of... It breaks his heart, their sinfulness. You brood of vipers. Ugh. Who warned you? Anyway, it's maybe it's fun to imagine that. He's thundering away. He's thundering away at the people in his preaching, and he's baptizing them for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus comes to be baptized, and John looks at Jesus and he says, "What are you doing here? You don't. You don't need to be washed. You're already clean. You don't need this bath that I'm giving to the people." You, there's not there's not a stain or blemish on you. You're perfect in every way. In fact, John says, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. Why don't you come in here and wash me? Because cause you're, the, you're the perfect one. You're the holy one. You're Of all the people in the world, of all people ever born, Jesus is the only one that John could come and say to him, hey, you don't need to be, you don't need to be washed by me. But Jesus answers, and this is the riddle, and he says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. <laughs> now what, what, dear friends, does that mean? What is Jesus talking about? Well, that's what we're going to talk about on the other side of the break. Oh, man, it's a cliffhanger. We've got to do it. we got a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Cross the Fence. On the other side, we'll talk about how John and Jesus fulfill all righteousness in the baptism of Jesus. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance. Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. You can help us continue to get that message out around the globe while there's still time. One way is to become a church or organization of the week. For a gift of just $595, your church will receive 35 30-second announcements during the week of your choice, identifying your church as well as upcoming events and happenings. And your pastor or a representative from your church, they may record those announcements or we can produce them ourselves either way. In addition, your pastor or representative will have the opportunity to be on one of KFUO's programs. It's a wonderful way to expand your mission outreach and to help KFUO Radio to do the same. For further information, call me, Mark, at 314-996-1520 or mark.hawkinson at kfuo.org. Welcome back to CrossFit. All right, I got another quote for you guys. Pastor Brian Wolfman, by the way, broadcasting from the Tower Studio. I, I just, every time I say that, it makes me happy. Here at St. Paul Lutheran Church, Austin, Texas. Whenever you're hanging around Austin, Texas, come and hang around St. Paul Lutheran Church. I'm reading. We're talking about the baptism of Jesus, but I was reading during the break some more Luther from Sean Kilgo talking about spiritual eyes. Here's a great picture. Luther says this. This way of looking at Christ is far different than the way the world does and the disciples did up to this time. But now their eyes are made clear by faith. This is a new insight. Here's the example. If I see a king's son in captivity in a strange land, clad as a poor man in a gray cloak or in the garb of a pilgrim, and know nothing else about him, I'm guided by my eyes and regard him as no more than a beggar. But if I hear that he is a king's son, then the gray coat, the staff, and all the other marks of a beggar vanish. I bend my knees before him, and I call him a gracious lord, although no golden crown or no majesty are visible to my eyes. 
Thus, St. Thomas and the other Christians look with carnal sight at Christ, seated behind the table. They do not yet see what kind of man he is, but the, the later they get another view and see that he is the way, that by his death he goes to the Father, and that through their faith in him they too will be brought there. That's a nice, that is a nice picture. You see a, a prince in prison, just looks like a, poor man there and you hear that he is the son of the king and then you realize that there's something else going on so it is with christ okay now now we're in matthew chapter three and we're talking about the baptism of jesus and we 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 got jesus to the edge of the water and john the baptist who's there baptizing for repentance looks at jesus and says you don't need to be washed by me i need to be baptized by you and then jesus says to him permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness now here's the best picture that I can come up with to describe what's happening here. I have to admit, this is an old picture because, if you can believe it, this text, Matthew chapter 3, was the first text I was assigned to write a sermon on at the seminary. And that was tough. I mean, I spent hours and hours writing that sermon. I thought to myself after I wrote the sermon, how in the world can I spend 50 hours writing a sermon and be a pastor? There's not going to be much other stuff going on. I better figure out how to do this a little quicker. Anyway, anyway, in working on that very first sermon, I was trying to figure out how to describe this baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan River, and here's the picture I came up with. Still the best one after 20 years. I can't think of a better one. So you got to use your imagination. Uh, get it out. Dust it off. Here we go. Imagine John the Baptist is standing in the river, the Jordan River, and... On one side of the Jordan River is a huge flock of absolutely filthy sheep. They are just miserable. They're biting each other. They're bleeding. They're covered in tar and mud and muck and flies, and they stink. And there's thorns and twigs sticking out of their ears and gunk in their eyes, and they're just the worst-looking I've just poor, miserable-looking sheep. All the, there's, you can't even hardly tell that they're sheep. They just look like extra large, disgusting rats. And John the Baptist grabs them one at a time. He grabs these sheep, takes it, dips it in the water, and pulls it out of the water. And all of the filth, all of it, is washed off in the river. And the sheep come out. This sheep comes out looking gorgeous. Curly, fluffy white hair, gleaming straight teeth. They smell like roses and cotton candy. <laughs> this is, their, their hooves are manicured. I mean, just everything's great about them. And he sets, it, sets this clean sheep on the other side of the river. Next one, same thing. These filthy, disgusting sheep are being washed totally. So there's not a spot or blemish. Or any such thing. They're made, they're made totally gorgeous and beautiful and put down on the other side of the river. This is what's happening. And then in the middle of this, in the middle of this washing, there walks down in the middle of this filthy, disgusting crowd of stinky sheep, there walks down one sheep, and he is perfect. Utterly perfect. I mean, you can hardly look at him because the, the white in his wool is so bright he it's almost he's so clean it's almost like he repels the dirt from all around him 
He makes the ground he's walking on looks clean. He's so radiantly and brilliantly clean. And John looks at this sheep and he says, uh, you don't need this. Look at you. You're clean. You don't need this wash. You don't need this. You, 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 you with me here? You see a picture? And yet this sheep looks at John and says, Let's, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fill up all righteousness. So he permits him. And John takes this sheep and he, he dips him down in the water. And as he dips this sheep into the water, all of the, the oil spill of disgusting filth from all of the other sheep that's there floating in the water, all of it goes and sticks to this sheep. All of it. I mean, the whole river full of filth is absorbed by him. And now... This perfectly white, radiant sheep looks worse than any of the others. He's bleeding, his wool's falling out, he's, his teeth are knocked out, he's got a bruised eye, There's, his back is slashed, he's covered in thorns. He's limping, looks like he's about to die. And John puts him on the other side of the river. And he points to him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> you see it? In his baptism, then, Jesus begins the work of being the sin bearer of carrying our sins and and bearing our sorrows. The Lord imputes to him the iniquity of us all. We, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord has taken our iniquity and put it on this one. Like in the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament? <laughs> This, remember that thing, the old oh yeah, I remember old the old one. <laughs> remember the Old Testament it had the Day of Atonement, and the Day of Atonement was a crazy day. But one of the one of the things that had to happen on the Day of Atonement is they take these two lambs and they flip the urim and thurim for them, and one would be selected, and that one the priest would lay his hands on that lamb, and he would he would speak the sins of the people, and that one would be the scapegoat. He would be driven off into the wilderness. And I guess, according to tradition, they'd probably drive him over to the cliff so that he doesn't come back. Can you imagine you're sitting there, you know, like roasting a burrito or whatever over the fire by your tent, and, and the scapegoat walks around the corner? Hey, just thought I'd bring all the sins back. <laughs> they'd drive it out and over a cliff so that it wouldn't come back. All the, It's bearing all the sins away. It's carrying them away, and so it is with Jesus. There's this great old hymn. Where do I have my hymnal here? It's this old Linton hymn. Uh, my faith, not all the blood of beasts. That's how it goes, and and it has this line in it. You have to imagine it like this. It's like it's like you are the high priest, and you're confessing your sins on this Lamb of God. So you imagine yourself 
Uh, I'm looking for this here, so I can read the lyrics to you. So, uh, so that you're ha- you're um, uh, you're there, and you have your hands on the on the on the head of this lamb, and you start confessing your sins. That's the, that's how the picture starts. And as you're confessing your sins, you open your you close your eyes, and then you open your eyes again. And instead of having your hands on a lamb, on the head of a lamb, there's Jesus. He's kneeling down, and you're confessing your sins over him. And you want to pull your hands away, but no, he looks at you and he says, keep going. So you finish confessing your sins, and then Jesus stands up, looks at you, and then he turns and he, and he goes straight to the cross, and he carries them to the cross to suffer. Yeesh. Here's the hymn. It's an old Isaac Watts hymn. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Now here's the picture. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows her guilt. That's the guilt of my soul. Knows her guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse remove. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. So that the work that Jesus does, the work that Jesus begins on in his baptism, he ends on the cross. The road starts there at the Jordan River, Bethany beyond the Jordan, and it ends at Golgotha, outside Jerusalem. It's all the same work, bearing, carrying, suffering as the substitute, as the one who dies in our place. I mean, this is the theology of the sacrifice in the Old Testament, right? I mean, we've got to remember that every time a Jewish person would come to the altar, they're, they're bringing this innocent lamb, and they know the lamb didn't do anything wrong. I mean, the lamb didn't steal from their neighbor. The lamb didn't tell lies. The lamb's not lusty and angry and rebellious. The lamb is the lamb. They're the sinner, and yet they are bringing the lamb to be burned, and, and God is accepting the death of the lamb in my place, the death of the lamb in, pl- in place of my sin. And that's the preaching of the sacrifice, and that's what Jesus does. He is the sacrifice to take away sins. And his death is that ultimate sacrifice to pay that price for you and for me. And the result is, if you can think of it spiritually, if you want to do this, that Jesus, by his baptism, cleanses all water to make it a lavish and rich flood to take away sin. (laughs) The water is clean. Not because the water is any different, but because Jesus... Jesus bears our sins. And that means, now how about this? That means that when God the Father looks at us, the baptized, he speaks of us the same way he speaks of his son Jesus. 
Remember when Jesus comes up out of the water and he says, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Now listen, if you're listening to me right now, if you can hear my voice and you are baptized, this is the same way that God the Father looks at you. He says, Behold my son, behold my daughter, in whom I am well pleased, with you. Now you say, look, how could that possibly be the case? I've done so much to make God angry. I've done so much that would make God not pleased with me. I've done so many things wrong. I know. Me too. But God is rich in mercy. And he did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all so that we might have the forgiveness of all of our sins. And that glory, that holiness, that perfection, that, that sin-washing blood is brought to us in this gift of baptism. You are my beloved child, says God the Father, in whom I am well pleased. Now that is good news. This baptism of Jesus is a, it's, it's what makes our baptism. So that Jesus can say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to treasure everything I commanded you. And look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us now, dear friend, with his confidence, his joy, his mercy, and his love, and his promise of everlasting life. God be praised for that. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host here in Cross the Fed. I can't believe it's over. We'll do it again next week. Maybe we'll take up Romans 6 if we remember. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thank you again for being a podcast listener here on Cross Defense. I hope you enjoy it. The last three weeks, we've really just kind of unfolded a, a few key Bible passages. I'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying that or if you'd like to get some more... Um, what we had discussions about various different topics. Let me know. Worldwide, Wolf Mueller is the way to contact me. There's a contact button there. Wolfmuller.co is the website. And if there was something helpful in this episode that you think, of, oh, you know, my my mom, my my aunt Betty, my cousin, well, they they might like that. They might like to hear about that. I'd love it if you'd share it with them. That's how that's how news gets out and about. And hopefully, we keep helping and blessing people with the with the joy of the Lord's Word and the excitement and delight of theology. So thanks again for being a podcast listener. We'll talk to you next week. God's peace be with you.